sometimes I wonder if I could just interview Larry Fink or any of these super mega billionaires, Jeff Bezos. Like, what do they think the world is going to look like in 2060, 2070, 2080? What do they think? What is their picture of what the world will look like? And what is the point of living in a fancy bunker or living in New Zealand? If the world is burning, you would just you would just be depressed. You would just be looking at the world burning around you. So what, like, just because you've protected yourself in some little bubble in New Zealand, doesn't mean it's psychologically worth living life if the world is just burning down around you, right? Well, I don't think they care too much about that. Um, I think they believe that, and they're probably already working on this. Like, I know the Saudis have this crazy city of the future they're building in the desert. Solar power for multi-millionaires and billionaires. And it's going to be like a little paradise that has, you know, they're going to be able to uh, create water from salt water, desalinate the water. They're going to have solar power and rich people can live. Listen, what do rich people really want to do? Get rich, fuck, take drugs. I mean, what, what's the great meaning of life for most rich people now? What do they do? They spend their money. They buy They buy stuff. The whole society is based on selling stuff. All this artificial intelligence, all this fantastic technology, you know, Google and you name it. It's fundamentally driven by advertising to get people to buy crap. I mean, the, so what the rich people, I guess, imagine that sooner or later they're going to build Fortress America, Fortress Canada, Fortress Rich People, wherever it's going to be. And that they can create the technology. And the thing is, they probably can. That would last some time. Like, you know, massive amount of solar power, um, robots, uh, desperate people that live outside the gate. Uh, you know, it's a kind of feudal castle, though, modern feudal castle. But they, they, you know, with denial. Uh, and the other thing, too, is uh, don't just, uh, underestimate the extent that financialization accompanies fascization. You know, it's this global capitalist system that created Hitler. It's this global capitalist system that creates these uh, virulent, extreme religious nationalists, whether it's in the U.S. or India, or you name it, or Israel. Uh, they have a very apocalyptic uh, view of the world. They So you have religious fanaticism on one side, and sections of the elites really, they're at their heart and hearts, find most of humanity expendable and don't care whether millions of people die off. I mean, millions of people are dying now. Do they care? I mean, how many children die of starvation now in, in the poorer countries of the world? Does, do the elites give a shit? Uh, the, the elites, this is the thing that the uh, working class in, in Europe and North America, they don't get that the elites don't consider them fully human. It's not just they don't consider people of color fully human. 
they don't consider the workers fully human. I mean, who you know? Look at look at the child labor in the 1800s in, the, in England, uh, in Wales. They had nine, eight, nine, ten-year-olds working in mines. These are nice little white kids, white working-class kids. Yeah, they used to. I was in a mine in Wales. Uh, it was an iron ore mine. It'd been mined continuously for like two thousand years. The Romans started mining the thing. But in the mid 1800s, before I don't know what the year they illegalized child labor, but prior to that, they would have little areas deep down in the top of where they had opened up space to get the iron ore. Little crevices where only a kid could get in. And so they would put the kid up there and they would put sharp rocks down the back of the kid's shirt because they had to work on their backs, but they didn't want them to fall asleep. So if they laid down with any relaxation, they would get carved up by these sharp rocks they'd thrown down. And they would take the ladder away so they couldn't get down from where they were. Um, then, because there was no ventilation systems, no one was allowed to piss. You couldn't urinate while you were working. If you did, you'd be fired. If you were fired, you, in all likelihood, might starve to death because that's what was happening to people that didn't have a job in the mine. They were starving. Um, they couldn't use donkeys to bring the ore up to the surface because you can't tell a donkey not to piss. So they used women. Women's bodies in such numbers were being so twisted, their pelvises were being so uh, weakened that by hauling this iron ore up to the top, they couldn't have babies. They were literally demolishing this white working class. This was in Wales, this particular mine, but it wasn't just there that it happened. They were getting to a point where the working class actually couldn't reproduce itself. Now, the individual mine owners didn't give a shit because there seemed to be enough desperate, unemployed people and kids they could keep going. But there were some uh, members of the elites of the capitalist class that started to realize that if you allow child labor and such terrible conditions for women, um, that you weren't going to have a working class anymore. So, you know, where would your capitalist system be? So that merged with the rising organizing of the working class. And so with the demands of this more organized working class and the consciousness in sections of the capitalist class that expressed itself to their politicians, that they couldn't demolish the workers at that, at that kind of level of exploitation, you actually did get a convergence of interest and they passed child labor laws and outlawed child labor. Eventually, they even got to an eight-hour working day. And there was other measures 
that the capitalists themselves realized that completely unmitigated capitalism wasn't sustainable. Now, can we see something like that now? Where sections of the capitalists see that this isn't sustainable. And that's the $64 million, billion dollar question. We'll see. Because so far, uh, there's a glimmer of it, but not substantial. Yeah, it reminds me of uh, Edward E. Baptist's work. He talks about how they managed to, uh, I think, you know, quadruple or whatever it was, um, the efficiency of uh, cotton picking just by calculated torture. Calculated torture. You have to pick your quota of cotton. Every day, your quota increases, right? Oh, and um, if you stop, they whip you. Um, and uh, that was how they managed to extract the most productivity out of their workers. And I was going to ask him if I ever got a chance to interview him how that philosophy evolved, because some corporations might say, oh, you have to treat your workers well to get the most out of them. Well, clearly they had uh, arrived at a, a system where you systematically tortured them in order to get the most cotton picked every day, you know? Yeah, that, that might work with cotton, but it, in the long run, it didn't work very well with modern capitalism. You know, the, the, the threat of unemployment was a better force of coercion uh, than, than torture. I mean, modern production didn't work very well with torture. And the Nazis tried it, you know, and I don't think it was very successful for them either. But in, going back to what I was saying about the uh, uh, this mine in Wales, one sections of the capitalist class started seeing it wasn't sustainable. But the other part of it was, is that sections of the capitalist class had no problem uh, with these the abuse and exploitation and virtual slavery of white children. Uh, so, you know, sections of the elites, when they look at the current world situation, if they come to the conclusion that there's no way uh, to save the situation without uh, a drastic fascization, separation of the rich physically, the creation of these, uh, you know, walled, essentially, cities, you, you know, you got this science fiction movies like Hunger Games. There's lots of these science fiction, you know, where the wealthy either live on some big spaceship or, or someplace. Uh, we shouldn't underestimate that there's serious thinking and planning for such a thing. Although I think right now the preponderance of the elites believe that technology will save them. Right now they think you know, there'll be some great technology, carbon capture, you know, it's only a matter of time. And, you know, you don't have to worry so much about it. Just, you know, maybe yeah, there have to be more investment. Like right now, Wall Street's not against Biden's invest this other three and a half trillion he wants to do. Although much of that has nothing to do with climate. But uh, they, they, I guess the, the, the level of their deny, denial is a, a deep faith that capitalism will work it out in the end. And it will be a technological solution. 
But if worse comes to worse, we have enough money that you know we'll be okay until there is a technological solution. I, I, I can't imagine what else is going through their heads. And maybe, you know, for the richest of the elites, you know, in a sense, maybe they're right. You know, millions of people head from the south up to the north. Well, they won't get past our walls, as they think. And, uh, you know, we'll have fascist stormtroopers that will keep people in line and will shoot people. And, you know, it's, you can imagine a fascist dystopia. Uh, that's not maybe how they think of it. But, uh, you know, this is the system that gave us Hitler and Mussolini and lots of other dictators and fascists. So how do we get this message through to ordinary workers? That's, that's the challenge. Yeah, and I didn't mean to dwell on elites. It's not necessarily productive to dwell on what goes on in Larry Fink's mind or whatever, but... It, it's obviously it's obviously a curiosity because you know it's one thing to say um, I will live in this global society while kids are starving in Africa. It's another thing to say I'll live in a bunker in New Zealand while civilization is burning down. I mean, those are two very different one. One, I don't think it's a frivolous topic. I think it's a serious topic because I think as much as we have to find out how to talk to workers. We actually do have to figure out how to talk to the elites and see if they can be divided between those that are really fascistic and those that like to think that they're liberal and care about the world and and so on. And there are, you know, there are some that you know, they do look at themselves in the mirror. They do worry about their kids. Uh, they're not all sociopaths. They are locked into an economic model. But they're not all social groups. The uh, and I don't think what they're imagining is a bunker in New Zealand as the world burns down. They're they're imagining beautiful cities. Uh, you know whether it's the Saudi example or something else. You know whether it's in northern Canada. But there's going to be places on Earth where you could build even domed cities with controlled climate. Uh, you know the solar technology is getting to a point. Uh, where, you know, if, if, if you've got the money, you could create a whole area of protected living. Um, so I, I'm not saying it's realistic in the sense that I think millions of people are going to have something to say about people living in Dome City. And, and, you know, if they think everyone's just going to lay down while they, they, they live in these little protected places, they're out of their minds. But they are. Some of them are out of their minds. So we need to have these conversations. And, and, and far from thinking it's just a curiosity to talk about the mindset of the elites, I think it's a very important topic. And uh, I, I almost feel like if I, 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 it's part of why I want to make this Ellsberg doomsday uh, film, is to kind of shake people out of this inertia and lethargy. And when I say people, I also mean them within, within the elites. Because there ain't no building a dome city that protects you from nuclear war. There's no bunker in New Zealand. But nuclear war, there is no defense against it. So it doesn't matter how much money you have. Uh, so in some ways, if, if 
sections of the elites get how dangerous nuclear war is. And it, 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 they can't buy their way out of it. I read this article in the Financial Post up here in Canada, and it said something like, Canada's climate will improve. Canada will be a better place to live. And I was just thinking, are you going to build a dome over Canada? Like, we live in a global society. And if India and Pakistan, I mean, India is a hot place. It's already unpleasant how hot it is. You know, those places go down the tubes. How are you going to insulate Canada? Like, we live in a world where, like, some tiny little thing, the Syrian civil war is nothing compared to what's coming our way. And that had ramifications and reverberations all around our global society. And they're talking about Canada's climate will be okay. And it's like, how are you going to insulate yourselves against the global effects of all these things? But even that isn't true. Canada's climate won't be okay. You know, I, I made a joke to this climate scientist. I said, you know, people are joking about growing mangoes in Muskoka. And he said, yeah, you know, it'll be warm. But wait until you see the drought that's coming. The growing season is going to be earlier and earlier. There's going to be less and less snow. Then where's your water coming from? Yeah, sure, if you're in Muskoka, right on a lake, maybe. But even the even lake, the levels of lakes are already down this year. Uh, droughts coming to large sections of Canada. It may not hit. Uh, as terribly as soon as, say, the southern United Southwest United States, but it won't be long before the water situation, even in Canada, is going to be serious. Uh, so even though Canada may get hit a little later and and not as terribly, certainly like in Ontario, Quebec, in the West is going to be terrible. You're going to have a dust bowl in Western Canada, more and more fires in British Columbia. Uh, but extreme weather events are going to hit uh, Ontario, Quebec, and the Maritimes. And uh, he's, he's, they've looked at it. When you start getting to two to three degrees, uh, two degrees, three degrees, uh, the Canadian situation is very serious. Uh, it, it, it's no uh, la la, oh, look how well we're doing. So never mind. I mean, I'm agreeing what you're saying. It's ridiculous to think that most of the world can be unlivable. And somehow Canada's going to be okay, ignoring that. But even Canada's going to be in, in terrible shape. We covered extremely urgent topics, extremely serious topics. You know, it's a bit apocalyptic, but, you know, um, yeah, uh, maybe just to end on a hopeful note, like what gives you hope in the face of these crises? Yeah, I get asked that question. Uh, I always have a long pause. <laughs> what well, gives me hope? What I said earlier, people organizing, direct organizing. There is a shift of consciousness on climate. You can see more, far more people get the danger of it than did before. Um, but we're reaching uh, you know, a real crossroads. Uh, and the, this rhetoric with China is very dangerous, the rivalry. And, uh, so what gives me hope? Not a lot, to be totally honest. Uh, I'm with Ellsberg. You know, you got to act as if there's still time to turn away from the iceberg. Um, I'm 
I just hope. What can you do? I hope that enough people will get the urgency of the moment. And then we have to get over it. You know, there's a wonderful article. Oh, here, I'll just do one little rant on this. Uh, Engels wrote this great piece not long before he died. It's called On the Early History of Christianity. And he based it on this work of Bauer, who did some work into the Dead Sea Scrolls, and some other stuff. I don't know exactly. But basically, it was a lecture to the European left against sectarianism. And the amount of fighting that was going on over secondary issues. Uh, and, and how much it was undermining the working class movement. And he says in this article, and everyone should go look it up, the, on the history of early Christianity. He, sa he says in this, the early Christians understood the need of building a broad movement. And he said, essentially, the, this anti-Roman revolutionary movement was made up mostly and led by Jews. But they needed to broaden it to include the slaves and, and other oppressed people. And how do you broaden it when to be a Jew is so difficult? You need a Jewish mother, or you gotta jump through a bunch of rabbinical hoops. You, how do you build a broad mass movement if you gotta be a Jew? So they developed this idea you know, dump your head in water, get baptized, say you believe, act in a way you believe, and join this movement and fight the Romans. And it was a broad revolutionary movement that fundamentally was to be inclusive and not sectarian. And he was saying to the European left, and unfortunately they didn't listen to him, that if we don't overcome this kind of factional uh, fighting, we're going to lose. And we're in a moment like that. If we don't learn from the early Christians and, 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 and build a broad movement based on very basic common objectives and values with a, a, an electoral strategy, and a community workplace organizing strategy, a movement in the street strategy, but a strategy connected with electing and taking power strategy. And that can mean different things depending where you are, what's possible. You know, at, at a city level, uh, in the US, for example, you might be able to completely break out of the duopoly of the two parties. Uh, but at other other elections, whether it's at a state level or otherwise, maybe you have to work within the Democratic Party. It depends what's what's possible in Canada. I I really uh, this is I don't I haven't said this publicly I don't know anywhere but I don't understand what the point of the NDP is. I mean everybody that supports the NDP joined the Liberal Party and fought it out for control of the party and create a legitimate kind of two-party system here with a kind of left-wingish party versus a right-wingish party. 
But right now we're looking at a fair election, which there's serious conversation that that the Liberals and NDP will split the vote and the Conservatives could win. I mean, it's mind-boggling. They could have another Conservative government nationally here. We got to rethink the political strategy in Canada. This current party structure. I mean, the Green Party is at war within itself, and even if they weren't, they're marginalized to the extreme. Uh, You know, there's very little time to get a legitimate progressive climate strategy in place. And if if the Liberals, which I don't have, you know, Liberal leadership is no better than corporate Democrats, so it's not like I have any faith in them. But maybe a war in the Liberal Party it's worth fighting it out the way the Sanders movement at least did, accomplished something with the Democratic Party, more than people thought possible. But, you know, what is the current structure, the way the NDP operates, and, and even when the NDP does win a provincial government, uh, do they actually govern that much differently than the Liberals do? So uh, this is a whole other conversation. But, uh, but to go back to my main point, uh, this this learn from the early Christians. So we need we got to figure out how to build a broad movement with a national vision and strategy, and and not just in Canada and U.S. But it's the same problem in really every country. All right. Thanks so much, everyone, for joining us, and I hope you enjoyed the interview.